Justin, I was looking at your Twitter feed the other day, and I know many people here in Austin, you know, like to brew beer. But I noticed something that I, I think is a little bit unusual. Is it true you actually make wine yourself? I do. I, do. I make wine, yeah. And exactly what kind of wine do you make in I guess I don't really understand. How do you make wine at home? What do you actually have to do? Wine making. It's one of the oldest human arts. It's amazing. Uh, so you start by digging a hole and planting some grapes, which is what I did. And uh, uh, I decided in 2005 I was going to grow grow grapes and make wine. And for seven years I read books. And uh, I just thought, you know, one day, one day, one day. And in 2012, we were pregnant with our first kid, and I realized if I don't do this right now, it's just never going to get done. And so I put the books aside. I dug four holes in the ground and planted four vines, which are still going strong today. Uh, so uh, six years later, we've just um, we've just bottled our fourth vintage and harvested our fifth vintage. So you have the whole thing. You have like a, a little a mini vineyard. I is have it a small vineyard? Sixteen vines. The grape is Lenoir which is a bit of an unusual Spanish grape with a French name that actually grows from its own rootstock. Most grapes today that you would drink wine uh, out of a bottle off the shelf are actually grafted onto, uh, onto rootstock that's resistant to, to pests. Uh, and the Lenoir grape here in Central Texas grows amazingly from its own rootstock. Okay, so you obviously grow the grapes. You pick the grapes as a family? Do you have to yep. list the whole family yeah, gets involved? It's a whole family thing, yeah. I like to... I like to think my my daughters are second generation winemakers at, at this point. So <laughs> they yeah. can uh, they can uh, one day update their LinkedIn's. I think so. Wine, I think so. Wine. So I don't know. I I always have this uh this this like I love Lucy rerun in my head when like uh of people like stepping on the grapes, stomping, yeah, on the grapes. stomping. And is is this actually how it's done? That's exactly. Is how that's it's done. that's actually accurate even today yeah. with all the technology? Absolutely. So there's a well, I mean. It, at scale, if you're talking, you know, Ernst and Gallo or something like that, it's uh, it's done a little different. But uh, at the the Kirkland Vineyard, uh, we put uh, we're from Louisiana and uh, we have a crawfish pot. So we've got a strainer and a crawfish pot. We throw all the grapes in there. Everyone washes their feet and gets a turn jumping around inside of the crawfish pot. That's oh. step one. We do press after that. So we take okay. out what's left, dump that juice, and then press and get another I don't know fifty percent. I feel like maybe some of our, our French audience is, is, is recoiling that you're, you're, you're making no. your grapes in uh, a crawfish pot. I think uh, that's, I mean, very few things in the world are completely unique, but I mean, that we may, <laughs> we may register that, uh, that would be one. So, so you crush it and then you press it and then like, I don't, what happens then? Like, what do you do then? Uh, so out comes this really sweet juice. Uh-huh. Uh, you measure the gravity. Um, I have to harvest a little bit early here, earlier than I like in Texas, mostly with my, my work travel schedule. Uh, and so you, if necessary, you can step it up with just a little bit of sugar. Normal table sugar will do it. Increase the gravity. You pitch a little bit of yeast. And there's actually quite a bit of wild yeast on the skins of uh, the grapes itself. And in about a week, it has completely fermented. All of the sugar in the in the juice is fermented out in one week. That's amazing. That's I mean, it. From, from, from beer making, especially some of the beers I make take uh, multiple years to make. But grapes are fermented in about a week. Uh, and then it goes through f- basically four stages of moving it from one vessel to another to clarify. So you get a nice uh, clear, clear wine with all the sediment uh, kind of falling out of solution. Uh, and about a year later, we, we bottle it. So there's sort of a, 
a busy July where we harvest the grapes and bottle last year's vintage. And then do you like leave, leave it on the shelf like a fancy uh, winemaker and let it, let it stays, age? It stays a little while. Uh, we're just get, coming to the end of our 2016 vintage, and the flavor's starting to fade a little bit. So some wines uh, age better than others. It all depends on how much sulfite the, the, the juice has. And I don't add metabisulfite to my wine, so it doesn't keep quite as long. But you don't get the headaches that you get from like a, a big old, you know, cab or something with, that's heavy in sulfite. Um, so I think we're going to drink these a little bit younger than, than aged. Uh, I'll save a few bottles for, for the library, but uh, this right. is a, a young drinking. We don't wine. sell them. Do you give them out or do you, or do you actually sell them or is it just no, it's a passion project? It's a passion project. Uh, for all of this work and effort, we end up with about 30 bottles of, of wine. Probably some of the most expensive wine in the world. It is. I bet it you when it's all uh, that's a, it's all said and done. I choose not to look at it that way. But no, yeah, it's a great you're hobby. Exactly right. It's, it's probably a great hobby. Well, I've seen you post uh, a couple of they look the, the, they look good. I don't know. I'm not. I I am the last person to ask about wine. But I think uh, you know I, I can tell. Like I know from knowing you a little bit and having some mutual friends, you're, you're definitely very diligent. So it's like one, you're not just making beer. Because everyone's making beer. You've gone the next step. And then, of course, you've gone beyond that because you've done your research both on the grape and as well as uh, the process, as any good product manager should do. So you are currently at Google somewhat recently. And we're going to talk a little bit about your experience at Google. But I thought we'd go back because you have a pretty exciting, I think, interesting history, work experience. And um, I thought we'd start kind of maybe at the beginning for you, right? So way back in the day, I think you went to graduated Texas A&M? Texas A&M, that's right. right. In the Maggie's. That's right. It's, and you're surviving in Austin, Texas. Which, I love it in Austin. Which is in itself as an Aggie. That can yeah, be there's sometimes. There's a lot of Aggies in Austin. There are, but they're, they're quieter than they are in, <laughs> than they are, like, say, in Houston or College Station. Um, so I thought we'd kind of go back because I think, you know, you uh, – I think you got a, like a, mechanic, a mechanical engineering degree? Computer engineering. Computer engineering degree. Yep. So I think we kind of share that in history. But I think you, you found your way to the software side like pretty quick. Not only, yeah. And not only on the software side, but I thought it was interesting because you know, I think a lot of us end up writing, working on various applications. But I think you've kind of found your way in your career to like maybe be able to say the, la- the layer right below. Mm-hmm. Um, and you kind of seemed like you got really involved in Linux at an exciting time when like I think Linux was maybe you know, exploding even as big as it was. So... One, what led you into kind of, you know, getting involved in building the operating system and, and you know, how did that work? Hmm. Yeah, actually, I think your premise for the question is quite a good one. Product managers have some of the most interesting and diverse backgrounds and having interviewed for a number of jobs and hired a bunch of product managers over the years, just everyone's story as to how do they get to product management is completely different. No one goes to their sixth grade, what do you want to be when you grow up and say, I want to be a product manager. Uh, we all just kind of end up here. So, uh, what got me into in to Linux and open source? Um, I, I left Texas A&M and took my first job as an intern at Tivoli. Uh, here, uh, it's in the Arboretum, real close to to where we're recording the podcast here today. I passed by the old my first uh, office building, uh, and there I was working on a build system, building Tivoli products, which had to build across uh, basically every Unix, Linux, and Windows as well. And, uh, I mean, it's an intern's job. It wasn't a very glorious job, but I had to learn a lot about 11 different Unixes, three Linuxes, and, uh, and Windows. And that gave me kind of a survey of the operating system, <laughs> but I really loved Linux. And I saw how much potential there was for Linux. This was summer of 2000. 
So Linux was was new. It wasn't brand new, but it was you know, it was big enough to be in IBM at the time. Typically, it was owned by IBM. Uh, and having seen all the operating system, I really loved what I saw with Linux and how much potential there was. And I made a pretty conscious decision there to switch all of my personal computing from Windows to, to Linux. Uh, and from a career perspective, just really started looking for opportunities that afforded me the ability to work in Linux and open source. And then so at IBM, it sounded like, I think at some point you transitioned and you actually were, you know, because I think a lot, sometimes people know, sometimes they know, but IBM, as well, as well as many other companies, right? Like they'll essentially employ people to work, you know, essentially full-time or a lot of time, right, on a specific open project that is sort of, deemed strategic or whatever, whatever whatever that means at the time. So um, how did you kind of get that job in IBM? And then like, how did that actually work? Like, who did you work for? What did you do? Yeah, I spent about two years working on the the Tivoli software. And then I got uh, an opportunity to join at the very beginning of the Linux Technology Center, which was um, sort of a group at IBM formed in the early 2000s when IBM uh, decided to invest a billion dollars in Linux. It was kind of a famous... Yeah, uh, remember that well, of course. Um, And so there was a manager here in Austin, also part of the Aggie Network. Her name was uh, Dana Rother. uh, And I met her and loved everything she was doing um, in the Linux Technology Center and with the team. She was leading the security team at the time. Uh, and I made uh, made a number of incredible friends and colleagues that I've worked with now at three different companies uh, around the industry. Um, uh, four, actually, four companies. Everywhere I've worked has included alumni of that Linux Technology Center, uh, and in particular the the security team. So I spent a couple of couple of years working on Linux security. We brought. Uh, both Red Hat and SUSE through the Evaluative Assurance Level Certification Project, um, which was the first time Linux had seen security certifications effectively, and it was really what allowed uh, IBM and others to start doing business with Linux in the enterprise. So, so were you considered like the bad guy? Like you bring this in, and then you're like, guys, here's the here's the list of things that you need to go look at. Was that how, how did that go? Uh, yeah, it was more like we were documenting the design of Linux. Okay. Uh, there was there's a piece of it called the low level design and the high level design, uh, which was my first taste of kind of product management, though I didn't know it at the time. Uh, but it was retrofitted, so we were creating those designs to describe the way Linux is actually implemented, as opposed to describing like the dream operating system and then going and building that. Uh, but it was an important component of um, of the certification process. Uh, we had to create a bunch of tests uh, that that confirmed that Linux behaved according to the, the designs. Uh, and that was some of the early programming I did. It was around a project called the Linux Test Project, LTP. And, um, you know, test programming is, is or creating tests, it's such an underappreciated uh, aspect of software development. And I would encourage... You know, anyone who's just starting out their career or thinking about starting their career in software, uh, don't discount how valuable uh, the, the, the QA department is, the test department is. I've seen more uh, brilliant engineers start their career in, in test and end up in incredible places, you know, 10, 20 years later, uh, team leads, managers, directors, VPs. It's uh, of engineering. It really is a great starting point. Yeah, no, I've I found that to be the case as well. I mean, I think the you know probably age all probably some running joke, right? It takes uh you know it can take like a day to implement your model of like a fairly simple application, and then you sit down 
and you're going like, to write the test. And it's mm. like the code base is like three times as large for the code and right. getting all the dummy data or getting it loaded. And it's like you ever want to like learn, especially if you're coming in from the outside and you don't know the code base, you didn't write it, but you want to like learn a code base is like, yeah, go and be in charge of the test. Sure. And uh, you're going to learn everything. And to the point that you're, you know, you, you will often know it a little bit better than the guy who originally wrote it. Right. And then uh, and you'll be the one who said, why did you do this? And someone will say, like, ah, I'm not sure. Don't, yep. we, don't, we don't recall that. Yeah. So, you're, okay, so you're at Linux. And then so did you get to the point, did you always work on security, or did you actually get to the point you actually contributed some, like, you know, some, some code back to the, what we think of the core of Linux space today? Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll always remember my, my first open source patch, um, which was never accepted upstream, and I didn't understand why until a bit, a bit later. Um, at the time the open source mp3 player this is 2001 2002 so long before a pandora spotify or anything like right. that streaming music over the internet uh the the open source mp3 player was a clone of winamp for windows it's yep. called xmms and on a uh, on a weekend road trip with a with a with a buddy from ibm kent yoder we we went skiing in taos new mexico and on the drive over uh i had this idea i want it um, XMMS to be able to stream music over HTTPS, basically. And he was working on SSL at the time. Uh, and so we drove for like 12 hours and we got there and Taos went skiing. Uh, and then at night, we banged out a small patch together that added support for XMMS to link against OpenSSL, which was a no-no. That was why the patch wasn't accepted. Okay. OpenSSL has a... Uh, a BSD style license and XMMS um, was a GPL v2 license and they were incompatible uh, but functionally it worked and as long as we weren't distributing it uh, it worked and so for years I had a hand built XMMS that I could stream music over HTTPS mm-hmm. and um, this is like the precursor to Spotify right here you're sitting on like a billion dollar idea well, you, didn't, you didn't even know it nah the marketplace <laughs> is the billion dollar idea in, in sadly this is true iTunes and, <laughs> and so forth but uh, it was I guess the, the key point was we looked at the source code. We changed the source code. We mm-hmm. fixed the source code and modified it to our own liking. Uh, and the result was something that was super useful to us. Uh, and that was never possible with Winamp, as an example, or anything, you know, Windows or proprietary from that perspective. Uh, and so it really clicked. And that was like, this is it. I, I get this. There's a, there's a career here for me, and there's a, there is a multi-billion dollar industry hundreds of billion dollars available in the in the markets around open source mm-hmm. and because it seems like you know from that like i know you're you're involved in like a lot of different personal open source projects i think mm-hmm. the list you know we'll post it in the show notes it's quite extensive i think it's 20 plus i won't even try to like remember them um but is that what kind of like was that experience what kind of like led you to start building a bunch of these different open source projects that you're still doing today yeah it was that came a little more with canonical um IBM, for all of its strengths around open source, uh, as any big company has, had a lot of restrictions about what could and couldn't be open yes, source. the lawyers. The lawyers, um, <laughs> who are there for good reason. This is also 2003. This is the yeah, it's time a different of, time, right? People still working it out. Yeah. Uh, this was the time of the SCO lawsuit. This yep. was, uh, you know, it's a scary time for Linux. Uh, and so personal projects in open source had to go through a pretty heavyweight process with IBM lawyers signing off on releasing that. Uh, whereas Canonical couldn't be more different. The, the, default, is, the default is open source. Um, the default, in fact, is free software. It's, it's GPL and AGPL at, at Canonical. 
and basically anything you're doing on your free time uh, can be released open source with, with, without any open, o- oversight at Canonical. So that was where, and we should talk about this yeah. a little bit. Well, let's go there. So, so you, you're at IBM for a while, doing, doing all kinds of stuff. There's go one ahead. important, yeah, there's mm-hmm. one important formative aspect of IBM that my time at IBM that I want to make sure we get to before we get to Canonical. It sort of serves as a bridge. Um, I was on that security team, and I got, a, I, got a, I got an email from my manager who asked if I was interested in a unique opportunity um, to work at, as an IBMer on site at Red Hat for, uh, for some time, a, a limited period of time. So was this time. like in North Carolina at the time? This or? was Boston. Boston, okay. Boston, Massachusetts. So uh, I said, So yes, give us I'm the time interested. frame. So this is like 2004? would have been, yep, 2004. So this is like Red Hat's probably just beginning to explode as... Yeah, it's starting to challenge Solaris and AIX for that okay. matter. So, yeah. And so you get the call. The interesting... <laughs> it was Thanksgiving. Uh, I got an email that said, would you be interested in this? And I said, yes, I would be in- interested in this. And after Thanksgiving, the next email was, great, you got the job. Fly up to Boston. <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs> Congratulations, you're Grab in. Grab your coat. You're leaving. Uh, so that was that. Was that. And um, my wife and I, we weren't married at the time. We were dating. And, you know, as imagine a young couple we were a little nervous about this i'm moving up there she's staying here and we're gonna have to do the long distance thing uh but i was excited about it it was a very unique position it was a basically a dedicated engineer staffed on site at red hat with a red hat badge and an ibm badge paychecks coming from ibm but my my job there was to work on um ibm power i think this was power five at the time and red hat four um, rel rel four um, and so yeah so I flew up to Boston I landed on January 2nd it was colder than this kid from Louisiana and Texas had ever experienced I mean aside from a couple of weekend ski trips I'd never seen the like biting cold of the northeast um, and I spent uh, almost a year there almost a full year and it was fantastic uh, I was splitting time between Austin and, and Boston I, I learned a lot I learned what it was like to be outside of your employer and representing your employer. Um, I learned a bit about travel. I was kind of where I started to get the travel bug of um, how much, uh, how business people do this that basically fly to and from work. Um, But I really, really came to love uh, the Linux operating system and the way open source business works and runs so, so what was the so the ibm motivation i assume was to get red hat to run on power was that what they were interested in yeah we were we were ibm at the time we were um we were trying to get the red hat kernel the rel kernel mm-hmm. uh some patches in the rel kernel that were needed for power five okay um and the bootloader actually that was actually that was probably the first successful patches i upstreamed or to the bootloader. Yaboot was the, the bootloader on power at the time. And uh, it needed it needed some some new functionality in order to boot these uh, boot Linux on these power systems. Um, and so yeah, I spent I spent about nine months there working full time uh, furthering that cause. Uh, and then there was a replacement, a guy who came behind me. Uh, and then a series. Actually, IBM staffed a person on site at Red Hat for years in that sort of rotating seat position. And uh, I had some advice from a mentor that the thing that that got me excited about it, he told me, um, 
when it's early in your career and you, you know you're looking to, to 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 do some good work, make make a promotion, make a name for yourself. You said uh, never back down from a combat mission. It's uh, it's character building, and you know if you're confident in yourself, you can do great things. So uh, I looked at that as kind of a combat mission. It was a, a challenge: go out into the field, do something hard. And, you know, learn from it or hopefully succeed. And yeah. So was what was, um, so I mean, in some ways that's maybe kind of the beginning of like your own product management, I assume, because you're, you're maybe the lone IBMer there. Or what, oh, well, it was the lone IBMer. And, and so did you have to like kind of naturally just adopt like kind of the advocate? I mean, in this case, there's probably a lot of people I would guess that like they don't necessarily think about power or IBM and, you know, you're, you're, you're kind of, that's your agenda there. So yeah. how did that work? Did you just become an advocate overnight or did you kind of grow into that? I was, uh, yeah, I mean, I was working, uh, sitting at a desk with the rest of the, the, the Red Hat kernel engineers. Um, my manager at the time, uh, dotted line manager at Red Hat was, uh, Tim Burke, who's now the VP of engineering at Red Hat. He's been a good friend and mentor, um, I was also working for Brian Stevens, who's now CTO at Google, and uh, you know it's been it's been interesting to maintain those those relationships over over the years. Um, it was a it was th- that job took quite a bit of soft skills to an extent. You know, um, the IBM culture and the Red Hat culture were really different, and the unofficial job the official job was get code into the into the kernel. The unofficial job was to build that relationship, build that rapport, humanize uh, the the people, uh, go and find the right person. You know, when someone's struggling to get something done, but I've got access to the, the Red Hat team and uh, and the IBM team, I was able to make a lot of those connections. Yeah, no, that sounds like an exciting experience. And I do think, you know, maybe we should give IBM some credit here. I mean, I've been so big and so many different projects that, you know, anything I say, I always feel like there's probably some counterpoint. But <laughs> in, this, in this case, it feels like IBM really... You know, because I remember back to that that announcement you mentioned earlier, that billion dollars. It wasn't at least the, as I look back on it. So I have no idea what the announcement said, but I remember it more like investing a billion dollars in like the ecosystem. So it was like probably people like you yep. know, I bet you your funding in some way probably was part of that. And and probably, you know, yeah. I think IBM because I I spent some time at Sun, you know, around this period or maybe just after this period. And so you know, IBM could have you know been like AIX or you know just like hey. Th- you know, come use our own thing. And, you know, cause I think that was sort of the sun, a sun has a whole nother podcast about sun's mistakes. But, um, but I think in the case, this case it sounds like IBM kind of like, say we do, we legitimately want to engage with the community, send people to red hat, probably people at other Linux yeah. distributions at the time. And, um, in this case, I think in that case it worked out pretty mm. well. I'd so. listen to that podcast. I think I'd like <laughs> to learn more about not just, you know, what, what went wrong at sun, but what went right, how much of, you know, modern computing we still owe to that sun legacy. I, I work with ex-Sun engineers and ex-Sun execs on a daily basis all over the industry. So that would yeah. be fascinating. Yeah, well, for those interested, I just uh, published a podcast one right right in right before this with Chris Donaldson, a guy who worked at Sun. We were working on some other stuff. But anyway, the short – so if you want to hear some Sun stories, we, we, he and I both tell some Sun stories right there. But I think the short story is, um, you know – and I, and I said this on that podcast. It's like, well, people ask when having the sun. I tell people, it's like, well, they're all at Google because I just felt like, you know, where they were, it's like everyone just drove one exit down. Because when I was at Sun, and I think I said this previous podcast, was just, you know, the, the Spark service just made all this money. And then there was just so much technology flowing out all the time. I mean, just incredible projects like Java and James Gosling. And, like, mm-hmm. the guys that were, like, doing this stuff were just, like, down the metaphorically down the hall. Like, you right. could go talk to them. Um, so it was fascinating from that standpoint. But then... You know, when they got attacked on the Spark servers, it was just like, where's the money come from? And then suddenly you kind of see uh, kind of some of the holes in the it's business. But um, I always think of Google sort of like picking up, you know, not not at all in the same 
market space, but just like just a tremendous technical talent mm-hmm. that can like, you know, and then you just kind of let it go. And like, you know, we can talk, we'll talk more about Google. It's like just all this crazy stuff that comes out and you're just like, wow, that's like it's the best and brightest. It's just, I've ever worked yeah. You're just sure, like, yeah. wow. So, so that's good. All right. So you're, so you do this at Red Hat for a while and you're at IBM, but at some point about this time, I got a taste for the distro. That was, uh, that was 2005. And okay. I so you're kind of getting it. getting ready to like maybe do something different. Is that like what yeah, what's I going think, on in your mind? I had, I had to come back from Boston. Uh-huh. Uh, I got engaged uh, to life, my wife. Life Kimberly. intervenes. I I had fun, you know, partying in Cambridge and and Boston and working with the the guys out in Westford. But I I bought some land. I was building a house in Austin, and I, I was looking forward to getting back. Um, I came back and switched roles. I led a team that built kind of an early precursor to what we would eventually come to know as cloud computing all over. It was a bunch of shared resources that had a, a login and you would reserve uh, an IBM power box or a, a mainframe instance or a virtual machine uh, running on x86 and you check it in and check it out. And this came from sort of my test heritage. This was called the ABAT project, Automated Build and Test. Uh, and it was a way of rather than having these previously everyone had their pet machine that they used for building, uh, compiling their code. This was, hey, there's a lab of shared resources. You log in, you check a machine out, and you check it back back in. Uh, nothing like the, you know, the, the things that we know of today as AWS and Google Cloud and Azure and so forth. But the, the concept was similar. Like, let's just share these resources and check the machines in and out when, when you want it. Uh, worked on that for a bit, and then it's time to move on. And I'd... Um, I had become aware of Ubuntu in that 2005 timeframe that I was on site at, at Red Hat. My wife was a teacher uh, outside of Austin here, and the summertime, I guess that was summer of summer of uh, 2005, I was help- helping her set up her classroom, and she had these old discarded uh, Macs, they were i3 Macs, uh, PowerPC based, and I was, you know, working on IBM Power stuff for Red Hat. Except that was big Power Five server chips. These were little underpowered PowerPC chips that uh, Red Hat didn't have a port for, not a, not a very good port for. And I'd learned about this thing called Ubuntu, and uh, in particular, there was a version of Ubuntu called Ed Ubuntu, Ed Ubuntu, uh, Edu Ubuntu, and it was sort of tailored for the the education space, and so. I cobbled together two working machines from a closet of just broken, discarded, old, unused Mac hardware from the 90s and got Ubuntu running on it, on our two machines. And it was my first taste of Ubuntu. And I was I was so deep in the Red Hat and, and SUSE world, I was just awestruck by how beautiful, uh, from like colors and fonts and just the, the human experience, uh, but also how well everything just worked in Ubuntu. And so I was Linux across the board, hadn't had a Windows machine in, in most of a decade by that point, and um, moved all of my systems to Ubuntu at, at that point. And at, at some point I was like, I, I, like this is a passion, you know, I, I'm, I love this. I, I, who are the guys behind this and can I get a job there? <laughs> uh, and that was, um, that was 2007, I started interviewing. I decided I was leaving IBM. I interviewed with Google actually at the time in 2007, and um, more or less had had uh, had come to a canonical or Google uh, choice basically at that point. Uh, Google might have made me relocate to California, which I was I was uh, that was out of the question. But Canonical was a globally distributed company. It was about 80 people at the time, and so I joined uh, Canonical in the 
uh, very beginning of 2008, February of 2008. Okay, and it's it's 80 people at the time. Yeah, it was less than 100. Yeah. Okay. So, like, what's the you know, it's interesting? Like, your entry point into Ambucho was sort of, you know, as I'm going to describe, it's like almost like kind of like the desktop Linux For experience, sure. right? And the then, um, but then I think of you know, this is just like what I think Ubuntu sort of becoming like this, the cloud Linux, right? Yep. For lack of a better you know phrase. So, what like when you're when you're joining. Like, what's the the vision people inside Ubuntu are painting, or or is there a vision? Are they just yeah, like, so hey, do cool stuff? It started as a desktop. You're right. It was uh, a desktop operating system looking to challenge Windows. That was bug number one in Launchpad. <laughs> uh, Windows has a majority uh, market share, and you know we aim to fix that. Uh, and was so, that true? Was that actually the, a bug, bug in there? One. Yeah, that's yeah. awesome. Go look up Launchpad. Well uh, done. Bug well, number one. Well done. Uh, that bug was closed in 2013. Um, by Mark saying, look, Windows is not, no longer has the market. The, for the listeners, this is Mark. Uh, Shuttleworth. The yep. C- CEO? Founder, found, CEO, chairman okay. of the board. Everything, right? Dishwasher, okay. he does it all. <laughs> Mr. Mbutu. Okay, so he did. He closed in 20, that's he good to know. He closed in 2013 and said, look, um, Microsoft's a very different company, but also Windows isn't the majority uh, operating system in the world today. There's Android. Uh, there's a lot of Ubuntu. There's uh, there's a lot of lot of Mac other OS, things. Mac iOS, iOS, and so forth. Yeah, so the world's stuff. world's yeah. changed. So that bug was a ra- rallying call for almost ten years around Ubuntu. But uh, at some point, you know, I think we graduated beyond that. When I joined, though, I joined the server team, which was um, one, two, three engineers and a manager at the time, and we grew wow. grew like crazy. This is 2008. Okay. Uh, later that year, we put. Ubuntu in EC2 in uh, Amazon, right? Uh, EC2, uh, really. There were sort of hobbyist versions of Ubuntu in Amazon, but um, I worked along with uh, Scott Moser and uh, a, a number of other people on that team to to help uh, clean up the Ubuntu experience, the server experience, and, and really define the, the server experience. Now, were you guys working with people at Amazon on this? They, or were they were you just kind of doing it just because you felt like this is where the world's going? A, a bit, yes. We had Amazon contacts. Those have got, those got uh, far more formal over the, over the years and as that business emerged. Um, but it started pretty grassroots, as everything does at Canonical and, and Ubuntu. Everything is grassroots. You know, it's, it's scratch an itch. So this brings me to the the long way to get to your previous question about uh, open source and the projects that I created and, and led. Um, the the outlet for innovation for me at IBM was patents. That was the one place you could uh, you could think freely and create something. And I created a lot of patents for IBM. Some that I'm pretty proud of the ideas. And it's really and at IBM, it's really encouraged. I mean, it's, what, it's it's like there's a whole process. That's probably it's lucrative too. It, yeah, I was gonna say if, if anything, sometimes we think about bureaucracy at big companies, but that's a thing that I think IBM probably has down. I don't know as well as anyone, maybe one of the best ever at like just getting lots of patents, which which is good or bad, but they do it really well. That's right. And I think I've, I filed like 75 patents in a very like a three three or four year time frame, um, and looking back, I'm a little conflicted on it because I see far more damage being done by software patents than mm-hmm. uh, than productivity. But at the time, as a twenty something engineer at IBM, it was a great outlet for innovation. I could think up crazy ideas, put it down on paper, and some of those uh, a lawyer would take draft into a patent, and years later. It would be a patent, and I'd you know make a make a couple of thousand dollars on it. Um, 
the outlet for innovation at Canonical was much lighter weight. It was a, a JFDI approach. That's what we called it. Just fucking do it. Sorry, you bleep that part out. I'm sure, but JFDI was the the short the short one, for, the short way to say it. And there are there's if you just look at my um, my my page of maintained projects, all of those came from scratching an itch. Where it's like I need this. It doesn't exist in Ubuntu. Or it doesn't exist in Linux. I'm going to create it, and um, and put it on Launchpad. That's what we were using before GitHub. Uh, but Launchpad was just our open source distributed version control system. So as I've got a couple of dozen of those, but one example of that is a is a utility I created called Run One R U N O N E Run One, and it's a simple shell script. As are many of my projects. I mean, there's some in C and Go and Python, but a lot of them are just shell scripts that do something really well, just <laughs> simple and well. What run one does is if you put it at the beginning of any command that you're going to run in cron, as an example, mm-hmm. uh, it touches a file and opens an flock on that file so that if your one cron job takes a long time to run and it comes back around uh, and the first one hasn't completed, but and then the second one oh, so wait. wants uh-huh. to run, uh, well, there's a couple of different flags you can use, uh-huh. but it can wait for the just not run the second one and wait for the, the first one to run. It can kill the first one and, and restart. Start over. Uh-huh. Uh, so if you're running like a long rsync or something like that, if you've had cron jobs that step on one another, it can do messy things, not intended things. So that's the run one utility. And there's... Um, it's available kind of, today? Still out there? Oh, yeah, still out there. All right, there. we'll put it in the show notes. All run one. Uh, and it's ironic. It's something that I created for myself because I had a long-running rsync, a backup that stomped on itself a few times. I uh, I looked at the right way to do it. I created it. I put a package in in Ubuntu, and it just works. And so, ironically, uh, two weeks ago, I was at the Google Next conference, uh, where I'm a product manager now at, at Google. I'm talking about Kubernetes, and uh, after my talk, a random person came up to me and said, "You're the, are you the guy who wrote Run One? Our my 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 startup uses it. Uh, it saved our it saved our bucket a couple of times, and it's ironic that." That that was what he of all the things that I, I've worked on that that was what he sort of associated me with. And so, just as one example, that was there was no process for it. It was write the code, put a package in it so that you can app install it in Ubuntu, put a um, put an Apache uh, sorry put a GPL license on it. If I wanted to do a different license, there would be a small process in Canonical to to choose a different license, but even that's lightweight. And then, you know, like later that day, it's in the archive, and anyone in the world can opt install it. That direct path from concept to implementation to end users in the Ubuntu community is unmatched. And I say that with experience in Debian, at Google, at IBM, and other places. Uh, there's nowhere that, that there's a faster path from an idea to it being in the hands of people than the Ubuntu community. Well, that's, that's a pretty cool story because, I mean, I think there are lots of in, things in there to unpack. I mean, I think one thing is um, – I think it's a good example of just, like, winning support for ideas. Sometimes, you know, some other people say this, right? It's like, like don't don't show, do, or don't talk, do. So yeah. so I bet you that, you know, it sounds like that run one came in. Our JFDI. Uh, yeah, and it's – well, but also, too, it's – you know, you could probably could have had, a, like, a bunch of meetings about that or asked, or, or asked a bunch of people and gotten various – probably contradictory feedback about if it's a good idea or whatever or when you have the skills and you've got the passion right this is where i think all like i think a lot of times people overthink like where products come from i think it's sometimes it's just what he says like i i know how to do this 
I think this is a big problem. I having it all the time. I'm going to do it. I'm not. You didn't go, things you didn't say in there. You didn't like go raise fifty million dollars. You didn't like no. put together a PowerPoint. You're no. like, I'm going to do this. I'm going to put it out there, and we're going to see what happens. And then we're going to make a decision. And so, you know, obviously in this case, it's still out there, still, still thriving. And I think there's a lot, um, as I think a lot about products, as, as you do too. And it's like, I just you know, kind of, it's like a good example for me. It's like people overthink this stuff too much sometimes. Like, you know, it's like, get it out there, see what happens, make adjustments. Almost every, I would say nine out of 90% of the open source projects that I've I've published and and maintained started as a script in my home bin directory. So something that was useful for me, uh, that did something useful for me. And at some point I was like, if someone saw it and they said, oh, can I have that? That'd be useful for me too. Uh, and so I would encourage anyone that has uh, a, a cheap hack in their home bin directory, think about, would this be useful for someone else? And you will have to make some changes to make it useful for someone else. Mm-hmm. Um, but go through those changes and then publish it, make it available. I do. I, I agree with you that. And I also think it's, um, you know, you talked about like, you know, you know, certainly in IBM, you get some, some money, right? When you get a patent, which is good, but there's, I don't know, there's just nothing more exciting than like people using the stuff you've put out there. Like when they like start to see the downloads on GitHub or like someone contributes back and it's just like, I think it's just the greatest feeling ever. You're like, ah, you know, like there are people out there, they care, they want to use it and they, and they come back with ideas or just what you said. And they come up to you at the, the conference and it's a great thing. So you know, probably for anybody, it's like, if you have the skills and the time, right? Like just take this. And, and you, and if, and I guess the thing I'd say people should push through, it's like, you know, if you have any inkling that other people may want it, it's worth the effort to put it out there and see what happens um, right. and, and do it. So that's, that's cool. That's a good story. All right. So you're at Canonical. Let's go back to this. You're at Canonical and then you're, you're, you're the server team. You and three of your friends are now. Oh, that grew. I mean, we doubled twice. Uh, you know, it was, it grew rapidly to, to 10, 12 people. So what, um, cause I think, you know, so much of like, you know, one decision at Canonical stands out to me as like really, uh, you know, I know uh, it's gonna be interesting to hear your, your opinion of it, but it, I think it was just super smart. It was like the idea that we're going to release a ver- or Canonical is going to release a version. Was it LTS long term support? Mm-hmm. And I remember when it came out, I was like, "Hey, we're, I can't remember it all the." Day. But it basically, right. it was like, "Don't worry, guys. This is going to be here, and yep. it's going to work. And we're not going to, you know, it's, we're not going to introduce like lots of crazy features here. That's you know, we have another version for that. Sure. And I, I just think that you know, it's such a simple concept. I mean, it is. But like, I remember. This is when I sort of like took a note of them, but I was like, oh, wow, this, I think these guys are good. And then the Amazon stuff, mm-hmm. right? It's like, wow, I think this, this is actually more interesting than I think just, just another Linux distro. Right. So, um, so now having said all that, <laughs> you can tell me like, like what went on behind the scenes to make that decision? So the, the first LTS was um, June 2006, and I was actually at uh, IBM at the time and, and working on that automated build and test system, and it was the first email that I got from uh, Mark Shuttleworth at Canonical, and he said, hey, look, I know IBM does some testing of Linux distros. We're thinking about making this next version uh, a, a high-quality um, long-term version. And it was the first time he used the term long-term support, L- LTS, uh, and it's the reason, it's the only version that's out of cadence from all the rest. And so that's 606. It would have been released in April, but it was delayed two months as Canonical put more time into into um, uh, into testing it. And you know, at the time, I, I helped a bit with that from the IBM perspective. Um, two years later, I was at Canonical working on the next LTS, which was 804. And even to this date... Uh, releases that happen in even numbered uh, years in the April time frame are the LTS, the long-term support. Um, so it's one of the real things that's different about 
Ubuntu and continues to be different about Ubuntu than most open source projects uh, and and certainly any other uh, operating system, be it proprietary open open source. And it's the time-based release cycle. I think 20 years from now when we're writing the, the books on the history of, of Linux, I think Ubuntu will get an important chapter in there, which is how it moved the industry toward time-based releases. So in a time-based release cycle, and this is very product manager focused, um, there's one thing that doesn't change, and that's the release date. date. No matter what, uh, we can cut features, we can cut content, we can do lots of things, but we don't change the release date. The release date is the release date, and we release whatever we have by that point, and the, the idea is to get it as good as possible by that point. So Ubuntu releases, like clockwork, set your, set your watch every six months, April and October, April and October, April and October. Um, but in the even number years, in April, those are LTSs. It works out to be every fourth release. So there are basically three intermediate six-month releases that build up to an LTS. And then that LTS is supported for five years. Plus, and this was a product I added uh, just before I left Canonical, another two years of extended security maintenance, ESM. So a total of seven years for any given Ubuntu LTS, and it is one where we focus on quality. We, we work much harder uh, on that one. We add fewer features uh, and, and, and add quite a bit more conservative uh, bug fixes and, and quality. And it is something that, you know, enterprises and uh, businesses can build servers and services and embedded operating systems and long-term desktops that you don't have to update every six months. Yeah, no, I think you're right. I mean, I think certainly a chapter at least in, in the Linux Bible um, because I do think... And, I, and it's know, influenced other projects. That's absolutely. the key point. So yeah. OpenStack adopted the same model. Uh, Kubernetes is doing a very similar model. Yeah. Three-month releases, no LTSs, but still time a time-based cycle. Uh, the Linux kernel has actually started to move a little bit toward that and has co-opted the, the LTS term. So there are LTS versions of the Linux kernel. And to many people from outside of the Ubuntu uh, ecosystem, uh, they've heard the term LTS and maybe don't associate that vocabulary with Ubuntu, but it, it most certainly did come from Ubuntu. Yeah, no, all credit to that. And I think, you know, we talk a lot about products and features and functions and all that's super important, but sometimes it's like just something simple like that, you know, kind of the release cycle and if you will, the business model, because like embedded in that is, is sort of like, you know, telling all enterprises, mm-hmm. like, don't worry. Like right. it's it really is. It's like, you're going to be okay. It's going to be around. And so, you know, so good. I'm, I'm impressed. So, all right. So you're at Canonical for a while and then it looks like you, you got the startup itch, right? Yeah. And I think, I think this is a good story that I'd like you to tell is that like, I think uh, you got involved in startup through an open source project, right? That's exactly right. And I think that's, that's good to connect to your previous point about why it's important to sometimes get those ideas out <laughs> Get there. jobs, get new jobs, that's, right? That's right. Um, open source has afforded me a number of opportunities, this being uh, one that I capitalized upon. Um, while at IBM, actually, um, I, uh, I helped with a project called EcryptFS, an encrypted file system. Uh, the original author was Michael Halcrow, who's now at, at Google, actually. Um, but at the time, he was on that security team at, at IBM, as was uh, Tyler Hicks, another colleague who was on that same security team. When I left IBM and went to work at Canonical, um, I led the feature development implementation, actually the, the whole thing, from product management to the, the, the code and the implementation, for Ubuntu's encrypted home directory feature. So I had this idea that I wanted to just 
in the installer, click one button and say, encrypt my home directory. Not the rest of the system, which includes a bunch of free and open source software, uh, but just my home directory. Uh, and I, I uh, proved that it could be done in, in a small uh, beta prototype. It was written on a flight to Paris. I think it took me about eight hours to, to crank out the PAM module that actually did the, and the helper mount function that uh, mounted the home directory at the right point in time in your whole login process so that uh, your home directory would be mounted before your profiles get sourced and all, all your you know startup scripts run and stuff like that. Um, but once I proved it could be done, this was late 2008, by 2009, April 2009, we shipped the first version of Ubuntu 9.04 with the encrypted home directory feature. And when we did that, this was before Mac had uh, the concept yeah, of file vault and stuff. file vault. This uh-huh. was before Microsoft had BitLocker and right, um, and well before like with mobile devices, like kind of it's almost default, right? That's right. It's all, so this is all this on the front end of that. Anyone knew the name Edward Snowden? This was before. Uh, this was, I think, a, a pretty important feature and developed real early on, uh, and has only recently been replaced in Ubuntu with full volume encryption. So now okay. that feature, just as of the the last LTS eighteen. And, Oh, four. Uh, we deprecate it. EcryptFS. Um, it's still supported in a maintenance mode, but now it's now we're using full volume encryption, which is a better solution given where we're at now. Um, but I was I was very proud of that, and uh, I continued to maintain the EcryptFS project. I handled the user space code, and Tyler Hicks uh, maintained the kernel code. And the two of us worked together. He he works at Canonical. He leads the security team at Canonical now. Um, but along the way, I got uh, I got an email from uh, a random person named Eddie Garcia. Uh, he happened to be here in Austin, and he was uh, leading the engineering team at a at a a company raising their first round of funding, which was using EcryptFS to encrypt MySQL databases effectively. Uh, it was a startup founded by two founders who were sales people, actually sales reps. Who were often selling uh, against uh, selling MySQL against uh, Oracle, and one of the key features that w- that they saw missing from MySQL was an encrypt my database button, uh, and so they worked with Eddie to use EcryptFS under MySQL to open source projects together to create an encrypted database feature, and that was the basic idea, and they wanted to take that to predominantly healthcare companies who. At this time, this was 2010, 2011, uh, we're up against some HIPAA regulations that required data to be encrypted at rest. So I started by advising Eddie. We kind of lived in the same neighborhood. We'd meet for coffee and breakfast tacos uh, once a a month, roughly. Uh, Eventually, he introduced me to his CEO, a guy named Larry Warnock, super active around the the Austin startup community, phenomenal advisor and and mentor. Larry put the put put the hard press on. What would it take for you to join um, this team? The company was called Gazang, and I went into that first meeting with like a one in a thousand chance of of walking away uh, from my job at Canonical to like a one percent chance. And then Larry just kind of worked on me over mm-hmm. over the course of a couple of months. And then at some point, he raised a round of funding from Austin Ventures. And he said, "This is do is do or dies now or never. You gotta you gotta join, join this. What would it take, Dustin?" 
And I'd spent four of the best years of my life at Canonical. I traveled the world, had worked on Ubuntu, had all the freedom I could possibly want, um, was well compensated to, to do so. Um, but then I just kind of looked at the, the opportunity. This is a startup in my backyard in Austin um, that had raised around. So I wouldn't be a founder, but certainly one of the earliest employees, I think number 12, roughly, um, uh, as the chief architect and eventually CTO on a company built on some open source technology that I had created, I'd co-authored. And I just said, this is once in a lifetime. If this goes down and burns, it, it will, uh, it, I won't regret it. And so I made a really hard decision, which was to leave a job that I absolutely loved and, uh, and take on, uh, the startup, startup world. I was 20, I guess 30, right at 30 at right. the time. This is good, good time in your life. Good timing. Uh, yeah. No kids yet. However, <laughs> uh, insert dramatic pause. Yeah. However, uh, we then were blessed with two kids in an 18 month time span. And I spent exactly 18 months at, at good thing. <laughs> uh, for me, a startup life and, uh, two young children, two under two was just incompatible. Uh, but we had a good run at Gazang. I had a blast working with that mm-hmm. team, Eddie, Larry, uh, the the entire team. Um, I led it uh, from a technical perspective as the CTO. I got a ton of customer experience, flew around the country. Canonical was more fly around the world. This was more fly around the uh, the states uh, and talked to some of the some of the most important CIOs and CTOs in the healthcare industry. As we were this upstart little company in Austin, Texas, who had a turn, turnkey uh, solution to encrypting all their healthcare data. And it went from just MySQL and PostgreSQL mm-hmm. to Cassandra and Hadoop and Mongo and Redis and all. I think that's what ultimately, right? Because the company ultimately did get acquired by. It got acquired by Cloudera. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a, a good exit. That team is the, the Gazang team became the. Uh, Cloudera security, security yeah. team. Yeah, exactly. And I think Larry's off doing another startup. He I is. think we know. We have some yeah. friends, mutual yeah, friends we'll, that are doing that one. We'll Can't plug uh, Alono, O-L-O-N-O here. So Larry... I guess we should know what he does. Something like sales? Sales? Sales intelligence. Intelligence yeah. analytics? So, sales yeah. intelligence. And knowing knowing Larry, he's on he's on to another winner here. So <laughs> It's good. All right, so you're there. And then so interesting, because I think sometimes it's interesting in people's career, like you return to Canonical, but this time in a... Kind of a pretty different role. So, yeah, well, so this is a this yeah, is a story I don't think I've ever told. So, so like, why don't you tell that story? Like, how how did you uh, get back to Canonical, and then what did you do at on this time when you returned to Canonical? Yeah, so we were we had a we had a one year old. We were pregnant with our second, and I just I told Larry I gave him a, a, a long notice. Like, look, it's just I can't do this, man. Um, and he got it. He had two kids of, of his own as well, and so um, much older, college age, you know. Um, and uh, I, I was talking to a recruiter who recruited me to Rackspace, actually. It was a VP-level engineering role at, at Rackspace. And I was through the process and just kind of at decision time. And I couldn't... I'd gone from working from home for Canonical, which was really compatible with, with me and my life, to commuting downtown to downtown Austin. That's easy. I live in Westlake. It wasn't the big, big commute. Uh, to a role that would have had me splitting time between San Antonio, which is a 90-minute commute. <laughs> on a good day. On That's, a good day. Yeah. Uh-huh. And uh, the Austin Rackspace office is on the exact opposite, like yeah. the diagonal opposite side of town 
from me. And so I was looking at 45 and 90 minute commutes every day. And I just, I wasn't, I wasn't excited about it. It was an OpenStack related position at Rackspace. Um, but as it turned out, and I've never quite gotten the story, but uh, Mark Shuttleworth, again, the founder and owner of Canonical, happened to be in Austin. And he reached out to me through his, through his admin and said, hey, Mark wants to have dinner tonight if you're available. And it kind of caught me off guard. I hadn't really spoken with him in, in uh, almost two years. And I said, okay. And so we sat down to dinner, and it had come to his attention that I was uh, through the process at, at Rackspace. And he told me, don't do that. It'll, it's a mistake. It's not for you. <laughs> right. um, come back to work for it's me. Kind of like an ex-girlfriend always. Like, hey, come back to me. You well, know? yeah. <laughs> Um, it, it was, it, <laughs> it was, uh, it, it was a, it was an impassioned, uh, pitch. I would okay. say he, he gave me, um, come back, work for me. I, I think I know your talents and I think I can, can use those. I want you to be a product manager and I'll, I'll never forget that, that, that line because I was like, Oh, product manager. Okay. And I just tried to hide the confusion <laughs> I was a, a CTO, and I thought I was getting back into engineering as a, a VP of engineering, and he wanted me to be a product manager. So I, I literally Googled product manager that night. Like, <laughs> right. what is a product manager? What does it do? I'd, maybe I'd been around and them. And then you got like 17,000 different definitions well, on the, <laughs> which is its own problem. That is its own <laughs> problem. Um, I, I knew what a project manager did, and I knew I didn't want to do that. They're... I love project managers. They're awesome at what yeah. they do. That's not me, though. Mm-hmm. Um, but I read more and more about product manager. And you're right. The, the definition's all over the board. But it looked sufficiently, you know, um, all over the board, open. Uh, right. there, was, there was this innovative aspect. Uh, there was this engineering aspect. There was this sales aspect. There was this marketing, um, you know, public speaking aspect. And... I, I was like immediately sold. And so I, over the course of a couple of conversations with Mark, we nailed down the, the role, the responsibilities, um, and the terms. And I came back to Canonical. I took five long weeks off, which was amazing. It's the only time I've taken that much time off. My wife, my pregnant wife, and my uh, one year old, and I drove from Austin, Texas to. Um, uh, Banff, Canada, and Jasper, Canada. Wow, that's a road trip. Of, yeah, yeah. 7,500 miles in five weeks and saw, I don't know, 20 national parks. It's all on my blog. It was a fantastic trip. Came back, refreshed, jazzed, and then spent another four good years at Canonical. Nice. And five, so, excuse me, four before, five uh, after. And I think you, you know, progressed up there because maybe started in product management, but you left is like, but what was your title when you left? VP of product. So yeah. you're really, you know, setting the direction, hiring, hiring product managers. Yeah. So Mark teams. was the VP of product when I hired on. He moved back into the CEO role and, mm-hmm. and promoted me, gave me the opportunity to lead the product team there. I'm still super proud of that that team, that product, the the the, the um, technology and. Um, technology that we developed, the revenue that we generated. Um, I still talk to Mark on a regular basis. We're, uh, uh, I'm very proud of, of Canonical and Ubuntu. Yeah, well, it says a lot. I mean, I think anytime um, the founder, who's always, no matter what they say, they're always the VP of product. Uh, but right. anytime they, um, when they relinquish that role to someone that's, you know, other than maybe uh, letting, you know, letting them watch, make, you know, watching your children, mm-hmm. I think it's probably as close as that. It's like, you're really, I mean, 
because if you've built something like you're extremely passionate, so to give it to someone else to like kind of be the caretaker means you know you've done quite a good job. So you obviously had a great experience in that, and then it looks like you finally made your way to Google, having interviewed with them what like maybe seven or eight years in the past. Yeah. You came over, and so what led you into Google? It's a good question. Um, I, Google is just one of those, not one of those. It's one of the companies that everyone admires. I mean, the, even the competition has to, to admire. Yes. There are things to, to, to be critical about as well. But, I mean, you're talking about one of the largest, most comprehensive, most innovative companies in human history. Like, literally human history. You, the, again, a, a thousand years from now, write the textbooks. And, you know, you'll have the East India Trade Company. Uh, and somewhere in there, you'll have a, 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 a Google and an Amazon and a um, Apple. It, it's it's really you know that's the that's how important the times are that we're actually living in. And it's it's incredible to step back and think about it that way sometimes. Um, but I really I got a super unique opportunity at Google as a product manager. So I once again relinquished the uh, you know once relinquished the C the C level title and <laughs> once relinquished the VP level title. I'm back to product manager uh, again. Um, I, which I enjoy starting, starting over and starting from scratch. There's, there's a lot of, there's a lot that you can do when you, when you kind of, yeah, I I like to tell people all the time too, especially in product management like that, that, um, if you were the hallway between like being a product manager and being a VP, it can be very short at times. It's it's sort of, it can go up and down much faster than I think in like sales or engineering. It's just because it's a, a very dynamic position. And I'll tell you, I have been over the years. I have been blown away by the product managers at Google that I've um, I've worked with, and and now that I get to work with on a daily basis. Um, so from being across the table to across the the conference room, our conference itself, uh, to now working shoulder to shoulder, product manager at Google are incredible people. Um, most of them seem to have been. Ex CEO, CTOs, um, VPs of engineering and, and product, and everything else everywhere. Uh, and at Google, just the autonomy to, to lead your product and be um, successful with that product directly, directly uh, benefits you personally and you know your family, of course, but also you know people and uh, talking billions of people when you look at some of Google's biggest products that. Started out as you know a harebrained idea mm-hmm. um, between two people on a on a on a road trip or a plane or something like so, that. So so what's it like? I mean, I think a lot of people listening to this probably have thought about wanting to work at Google or maybe they've even applied at Google on the and spe- specifically on the product management side. Like, what's the interview process like for a product manager at Google? Yeah, it's quite refined and formal. Um, having run interview processes at uh, a Gazang, a startup, and at canonical, um, kind of a mid-sized startup. Uh, the Google process is extremely refined. Um, I've been through it a couple of times. Uh, I've, I've been offered a job that I didn't take that required relocation. I applied for a job that I, uh, I didn't get. Um, and then eventually applied for the right job that, that I did get and everything sort of worked out. Uh, the interview process is it's very scientific, I would say. The goal is to the goal is really to find the right match, and the match goes in both directions. So that that you, you're a match for for Google, but also that Google's a, a match for you. And the the process has a number of 
number of triggers in place to ensure that that is um, that it's a successful experience across the board. Um, I've been asked a number of times, having now I guess made it through the process, what what tips or advice you have, and so I would say the one thing is um, be yourself. Uh, that you know, and that that sounds trite, but like seriously, be yourself. And if if yourself is is the, the the person compatible with the job and with the company, uh, and the company is is going to be itself as well in the process. Uh, things will work out. Uh, and then I would say ask questions, lots of questions. Um, that that curious nature is part of uh, part of what I think we we look for. Um, but also asking questions is a way of demonstrating expertise in a strange way to to ask an appropriate question or a deep question demonstrates knowledge that uh, that may or may not come across otherwise. Okay, good. And, so, and then maybe we should talk a little bit about like, what you're working on now. So you're in the Google Cloud platform team, right? GCP mm-hmm. team. Mm-hmm. And then uh, I think everybody listening to this podcast probably knows what Kubernetes is. <laughs> but like, so you've taken on, uh, I think, private cloud? Or the, like, what, what part are you working on? Yeah, so first of all, Kubernetes, you, you think people know what it is. I'll just ensure that that's the case. Kubernetes is a container orchestration system. It's an open source project. Originally created and published by Google. By yeah. Google. yeah, and I would say, like, and if you don't know what it is, you should listen to the last 50 episodes. Oh, okay. to find okay, talk. Okay. No, no, I just want to know if you have it, but we have, uh, we have, we have covered it many, many oh, okay. times. And uh, so I think, but, but that's but well said. So, so built at Google, and now you're, you're taking on part of it. Part of it. So there's a great team of product managers around me. Mm-hmm. Um, my manager who leads product management for all of Kubernetes is Aparna Senha, um, she's fantastic and leads a, a great team of, of people that um, that focus on different areas of Kubernetes itself, of which I've got I've got a couple uh, to a large extent. And I worked with Kubernetes at, at Canonical, and that we were doing a lot with Google and others around Kubernetes, and just it being open source, it was sort of in Canonical's breadbasket anyway. Um, my experience has really been in, in the enterprise, uh, meaning traditional Fortune 500 companies bringing uh, Ubuntu and OpenStack and Kubernetes into those enterprises and and then IBM before that I, I, I have experience there and I understand the products understand the procurement process uh, the pricing process the, the, the negotiation process all of that is unique in the enterprise compared to startup and government and other, other verticals industry verticals for instance um, but Aparna hired me, I think, to, to bring some enterprise experience into Kubernetes product management to complement the, the team there. Um, and so one of the pieces that I'd been working on for the last couple of months, uh, we just announced at Google Next, uh, and this was um, on stage two of, two of my colleagues, Weston Hutchins leads the product management for GKE on-prem. Uh, and Matt DeLeo as well for, for some aspects of it. And then I've been helping with other aspects of it. Uh, but the, the team together put together uh, a version of Google's Kubernetes engine, GKE. That's the thing that's normally hosted in Google Cloud. Uh, and we've adapted it so that it can run inside of VMs in a traditional enterprise. And we announced that at uh, Google Next. And in a week of a ton of amazing announcements. That seems to be one of the ones that resonated 
um, most uh, most directly. And uh, we're super proud of what we've done so far. And you know, we've got a lot of a lot of a lot of work to go. And yeah, and I think it's uh, just so everyone knows. I think it's is it in, is in beta? Is that right? Is that it's uh, in alpha? Actually. Alpha. Okay, yeah, that's yeah. what I'm trying to remember. The and um, we'll put early a, access. So yeah. it's a it's kind of an invite only early access. Yeah, you need to know somebody. You need yeah. to know somebody. So yeah. So if you're listening, maybe if you find Dustin, maybe we'll let you in because I think uh, we'll put a sh- uh, link in the show notes. Like uh, your your presentation, sure. uh, one of them is is up there. And so I, you know, I think it's interesting because you went through um, you know kind of like the classic product manager product management roadmap, like here are the customers. I think you, you did like a telco, right, was one. And then um, I think there was a... More like use cases. Use cases, areas, right. Yeah. And then there was another... Um, you didn't say this, but I'm going to say this. It was like high-frequency trading use case. I think you like broadly called it finance, but I think that sure. was a good one. So I think there's some good ones. And so it's worth watching uh, if you're interested to kind of see... Because it can kind of gives you a window into what you guys are thinking. But the one right. question I want to ask you about that presentation was how much... Because um, I think a lot about this too, like, people don't often think about like psychology right around this. It's like, there's a certain mindset that I think sometimes people like, they want to run things internally, not necessarily because it's always even better. Right. And this is just the cloud adoption in general. Right. And I just wondered what your thoughts were around, like you outlined some, some key use cases. I think they have some technical requirements that would require that, but in your um, in discussions with customers, do you see that? Do you see kind of like some some of it's just more like it's just more like an emotional mm-hmm. like people don't like to talk about software this way, but sometimes it's an emotional personal thing. And so, I, I suspect one of the reasons you're getting so much feedback is like that kind of hit an emotional chord with people. Like, hmm, I think we need to look at that. Uh, what's your take on that? That's funny. So I've been I've been reading uh, Lord of the Rings to my daughter, and it's like <laughs> well, a, really, how old is your daughter? Uh, She's six. Maybe maybe that's inappropriate. I don't know. She no, I like it. it. She loves it. That's uh, that's definitely the advanced level for the six. But go well, on. I'm reading it to her, right? But uh, it's you know like Gollum and the, the precious, right? My, My precious, precious, right? Yes. So. Uh, there, there is a little bit of that, you know, these, these are my, my machines. Um, I can't, you know, I can't let go of them. Um, the psychology that I've certainly encountered, particularly in, in sales pitches over the last, over my career, um, is you have to be aware, especially when we're, when you're selling software, if the person you're talking to across the table, if you're literally trying to sell them a replacement for their job. Um, that doesn't go over so well right. sometimes, you know, um, in other cases it's, it's inevitable or they're bought into it or they're ready to, they realize do something else, right? Yeah, and do something else. In other cases, it's the, the C-level exec, uh, whose strategy is to, 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 to change the way certain resources are, are used. Um, but if you're sitting across the table saying, Hey, look, I can automate you out of, out of the job that doesn't go over so well. So there is a psychological aspect to being aware of that. And ensuring that your your um, your value model aligns with with what the buyer is is looking for. Um, so in some cases, someone's someone's job is to take care of a bunch of machines on prem, and if those machines aren't on prem anymore, then their job is potentially at risk. And to you or me, it might be great. I'll I'll that's that sounds awesome. I'll get rid of I'll get rid of those machines and go and do something do some else. different, right? Yeah. To others, it, it just it doesn't work like that because. The organization isn't structured that way, or or they're at a point in their career where that's just not a good option, right? Um, there's a little bit of that, but not a lot. You know, I, it's it's interesting that you would ask about the psychology of it because I don't think I've actively thought through that. Um, this is just sort of gut reaction on 
on what I've seen here. Yeah, no, I think it's it is interesting. I just because I noticed when like the private cloud announcements come out, like Microsoft did theirs. You know, you guys um, uh, did yours, and other people. And you know, again, this is my. I've been making this prediction for like four or five years straight. Like Amazon is going to eventually announce some private cloud thing. You know, and uh, reinvent. So I'll just you know, put that on the table for my fifth year in a row of predicting <laughs> the same thing. Um, but you know, what it comes down to is, I just think you know when you watch the press or any, when you just watch a response to it, like it's more than just a feature, right? It's like yeah. people are like, oh, private cloud. I need to like, like, oh, it's just important, right? And I think that's, I always think the reason the response is so big is it's triggering some kind of emotional response, which could be all the things which you said. Sometimes it's like fear, right? It could be like, yeah. I'm going to lose my job. Sometimes it's just like, interest like i need to figure this out like we've been trying to figure this out we're so not I sure a different approach in, in in my presentation that you referred to and i guess we'll link to here i i looked at 10 use cases and it was a bit more pragmatic than mm-hmm. than, than than it was actually quite pragmatic these are places where we have come to understand that a hybrid cloud approach of some compute storage network on yeah, it's clearly needed yep. some compute yep. storage uh network in the cloud uh just it 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 makes sense here. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is different than what maybe the public clouds were saying a couple of years ago, which is everything's going to come to public cloud. Uh, everything's going to come to public cloud. Everything's going to come to public cloud. Right. Um, I think we've actually seen some new ones emerge where, no, it's, it's not. And if, if you want a full hour on examples of places where uh, we, in, 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 in my presentation, I present my understanding of of those and it's um it's pretty detailed and has some detailed examples yeah that's good yeah we'll definitely get all right well one more kubernetes kubernetes question maybe how to say it would be the right one for me but uh it would just be you know one of the things i think that's happening in kubernetes too is is like there's the kubernetes platform container orchestration functionality that exists today and then there's the word kubernetes like I think, you know, people always ask about marketing brand. Like, it's a brand. Whether we want it to be or not, it's a brand to itself. And I think it's starting to take, like, the placeholder for just sort of, like, operating system for the cloud, right? And it's sort of, like, all these other projects, um, you know, Istio, we go on and on, right? Sort of, like, they all relate to it and their technical differences. But I kind of think of Kubernetes, you know, and I think Google leading this is, like, it's becoming bigger in my mind, right? It's like what this, the bigger objective is. So I was just wondering, do you guys think about that inside Google or do you think about more like, oh no, we're just container orchestration. Like, do you think it's like getting bigger than just that one set of functionality? Wow. That's a, that's a big question. Um, I think it's inevitable that, that there's, that new features get added to the core of Kubernetes itself. And the real question is, does, does that do we expand all of that under the Kubernetes brand name, that right. sort of umbrella, or do we fan it out into separate projects and sort of mix and match them like a like an a la carte menu? Which is kind of what CNCF is kind of doing. That's right? kind of what I was going with. Mm-hmm. So Kubernetes itself, you mentioned that the brand that that is a trademark by the the CNCF. That means a certain thing and can be used to 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 delineate certain concepts, right? Um, but then there are a bunch of other projects in and around Kubernetes in the CNCF, whether it's Container D or etcd is, is the, the newest one and so forth. And I think that's a good and healthy approach. Um, in many ways, I think we're, this, it's inevitable to compare this community to um, OpenStack, but in many ways, I, I think we're, we, we're looking at the way OpenStack does things and just trying to ensure that uh, that that we optimize, you know, that we learn from 
um, you know, the, the lessons learned from previous um, attempts to build a operating system for the cloud, right? Yeah, that, no, that definitely. Orchestration system. Um, I think operating system for the cloud is kind of a dangerous term to some extent. It's great from a concept perspective in that we operating system science is now 50 plus years old and it's well established. You know, you've got a memory manager and a scheduler and, you know, each of those different components and you can kind of map those sort of components to, uh, to an orchestration system like this. Um, but I think it's also sort of dangerous to try and, uh, to try and make everything an operating system for right. <laughs> for the cloud. Don't let the previous you know paradigm you know influence the the future thinking. Yeah, I think we need to. We I think layers are important, and you know we in Kubernetes we trust that there is a good operating system layer below us, and we don't have to worry about that. And to some extent, the end user interfacing with Kubernetes doesn't have to worry about the operating system. If yeah, the, if the cloud's taken care of take care of it in a in a in like a GKE hosted scenario. Um, and even the hardware, right? You don't even have to worry about the hardware if you're using a, a public cloud. So to operate in, in layers, I think that's the important important concept. And the operating system is a layer. And I don't, maybe I'm, I'm just a bit, of, have a bit of operating systems bias, but it, it, I turn my head sideways a little bit when I hear operating system for the cloud. It's a, it's a fine visual, but it, that's not what this is. Not, not what you're doing. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, listen, Dustin, I really appreciate you being on the show. Where can people find you online? Uh, Twitter is good. All right. Yeah. Put that. And then you've got a good, pretty good blog, I think. All kinds yeah. of... Uh, it gets updated yeah. up and uh, somewhat frequently. It, it, yeah, it used to. It used to a lot more. I, I think I had more time to do that sort of thing. Uh, before children. Before, before children, yeah. Before children, so... All right. We'll put that in the show notes. And then, uh, of course, I think everybody knows Google Cloud. But, you know, go go sign up. Try Google Cloud. We've all done yeah. it. It's out it's there. A, Lots of good stuff. Fantastic cloud. Watch yeah. Dustin's presentation. It's really good. Um, but, you know, I always like to end on this question because um, you've, you've, you've already given some good answers here. And I think uh, there's even something about like a ship I think would be good. But like what is something uh, that you know that you think everyone else should know? Something I know that everything mm-hmm. everyone else should know. Because I think you even – one thing I think you pointed out was like the museum thing I thought was really interesting the other day on your blog about uh, – uh, yeah. what, what was that? The Vasa Museum. I, that was pretty incredible. Um, I, it's a this is a strange question, but well, I'll give a strange answer to a Go strange strange question. There's a museum in Stockholm called the Vasa Museum. It includes in a, a a complete ship from the 1600s, like 1636, uh, that sunk in Stockholm Harbor and was raised, floated, and moved about two miles, floated on water all the way to where the the museum is today. They jacked it up and built a museum around it. And you can see what at the time was sort of the Death Star of uh, 1636. It was the biggest, most expensive warship that it had ever been made. And much like the Death Star, it had this fatal flaw, which is it had two rows of cannons instead of one row of cannons. <laughs> and the lightest little breeze tipped it over just a couple of feet and the water started rushing in through the lower cannon holes, and it sunk in about 20 minutes. Uh, and it sat on the bottom of the harbor in cold, salty water for 333 years until it was discovered, raised, and 
put in a museum and the museum is spectacular and it it's like it's like one-eyed willies shipped from the goonies i mean it is just incredible and it's in us uh, so this museum is in stockholm, stockholm Sweden. all right so if you're ever there and it's i don't know i've never been to stockholm but i i read about the ship and it was mm. it was quite interesting and uh it reminded me of like a software or like a application you're running and like you've just maxed out all the memory in, mm. in the the processor on your and you're just like up oh, like what do what, what do I do now? We don't. What, it, that's kind of feels like how this ship was architected. It was like, sure. um, I don't know if that second row of cannons probably didn't probably didn't think it through very well <laughs> when they <laughs> when they kind of ran out of RAM and memory. It was like, up, oh, we're just gonna yeah. Uh, we're just there's gonna... a there's a whole explanation for it. It was a rushed design. The the, the head product manager, the the ship's architect, uh, died during the middle of it, and they the king uh, just steamed on through. Keep going, just do it, build it, and ru- sort of rushed rush this project so maybe right. maybe building ships should not be a time-based thing. yeah that would should not be not be a time-based thing <laughs> and if you are like test them test Perfect. them before you use them out right. so i'll put a link in there's a good write-up on it and obviously you can go check out the museum if and if you're there. in stockholm you have to go to accurate for yeah the pictures look phenomenal because i mean this is one of those cases where it's not just a plaque of a ship it's the ship right yep. so it's pretty fantastic all right well dustin thank you very much for being on the show we really appreciate it and uh, thanks for everyone listening. Uh, if you haven't already, please subscribe to our other podcast. It's at uh, www.softwaredefinedtalk.com. There you can uh, join our Slack channel. You can email me at stickers at softwaredefinedtalk.com. I'll give you one. You can buy a T-shirt, all kinds of fun stuff. So we really appreciate you guys listening. And until next time, we'll see you later.